some point in January. Can I ask you, um, so you're a student who's doing Fulbright, right? I graduated from Stony Brook in 2019, so I applied as an alum. And um, I, I was planning to apply this September. And where are you going? I'm going to Hungary. Oh, okay. Do you have any advice? Um, my impression is that normally um, these sorts of scholarships are sort of optimized for doing the best possible work. But now I'm actually thinking they're much less about the research you're proposing and more about like cultural exchange. Uh, I, I actually, just wonder. Yeah, I work with students and as a consultant to help people prepare applications for Fulbright. Mm -hmm. as, and something that I encourage people to think about is you have to answer a variety of questions. So why Fulbright? Like, why would you be wanting to engage in the largest uh, cultural exchange program as a cultural ambassador as the first step? And then why does that have to be a component of why you're doing research? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different ways to do research. Why should you be doing it through a Fulbright? So they definitely are connected but the research has to be pretty specific. And I, I'm going to be, um, I'm teaching English. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of different tracks, but I would definitely be happy to connect with you uh, offline. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, um, I'll, uh, on chat, I'll send my email. Okay. Haley, it's so nice to see you. Good to see you. <laughs> hey, that was a really nice surprise to turn this on and see you. Okay, I'm sorry, I could not figure out how to start the Zoom meeting on this strange computer that I'm using. Does everybody, does everybody hear me well? Yes. Awesome. Okay. I'm going to share the screen. As usual, I have an outline. As usual, we're not going to cover any of it, I'm sure. But while I'm downloading it and sharing it, I wanted to just start with a question. What is, and the, the reason this whole class really started, I, uh, Lily, I think it was actually your question. You were like, why are we talking, we were talking about makeup and Judaism in general, and mm -hmm. the sheet that we were using started out by talking about makeup and different magician about makeup, and we're like, what, there see, almost seems to be this value for makeup that sort of feels a little bit antithetical to Judaism, and we think about Judaism as being, you know, about religion in general, but, but Judaism as well as being, you know, we're about spirituality, we're not into physical appearance, um, you know, right off the bat, if you're, if you're asked for any sources on beauty in the Torah, we tend to, you know, call to mind some of the more negative sources. So the question was, what, is there a place for beauty in Judaism? Is there a place for caring about our appearance that much that we must wear makeup for Shabbos, right? I mean, the short answer is, is going to be yes, but I'd love to hear people's thoughts on it while I pull up the screen sharing. Anybody have any thoughts one way or another on, on how, what they see as being the role of beauty in Judaism? I've just been confused about this, <laughs> like from the get-go, so confused. I thought, like I went to a Chabad seminary and the girls are very much like, you know, we're Basisal, like we're Hashem's daughter or princess, whatever, so we have to look like a princess. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, what does that have to do? I don't, I feel like I, I wasn't, I didn't get it. <laughs> what, oh, interesting, Tabor. In other words, you thought Lord doesn't mean, in other words, what you were hearing was it's important to look beautiful. And you were like, wait a minute. I, I thought like, and it's antithetical to religious ideas. And it's like, you know, we're supposed to be like very sneeze, very modest, not attract attention. 
and and at the same time there's a big focus on like doing tons of makeup and like looking gorgeous all the time and I'm like which one is it like I don't really get it yeah 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 oh, I'm so glad we're doing this class anybody else any other thoughts one way or another but definitely um like with the matriarchs how they're described in the Torahs they're always talked about being like the most beautiful people ever um like Sarah Mainu and Rachel and Rifka, so that so it shows that it is important. But I once heard somebody say that I was a Chabad rabbi when we did one of the Shabbatones in Kew Gardens, and he said like they were just so beautiful on the inside that it it came out on the outside, and and that's what we're trying to do. That's that's what our goal is. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. Any other thoughts? Um, something I'm thinking about is how on. Um, Always correct me if I don't know what I'm talking about, but uh, where you, you put on your makeup on Shabbos, but you can't really take it off or put on more makeup. So it's like the act of creating too is that's coming up for me and thinking about that right now and drawing the art of that. Yeah, that's a really interesting piece that connecting, creating with beauty. Yeah, it's true. I'm not sure how it ties in, but it's definitely true. It's a really interesting thought. Um, I think I'm screen sharing. Does everyone see the screen? Yes. Alan, awesome. Okay, I can I can share it afterwards, although it's really sort of half baked still. But Beauty in the Bible. Thank you, Chai Rosenbaum, for that amazing title. Um, a couple of sources, as you can see, there's a comment here because I didn't finish putting the sources down. But but a couple of the main sources I used were source sheets by Rabbi um, Anthony Manning of Matrasha Tehila, Rabbi Zinfora Heller, Rabbi Dr. Nachum Amzel, who has a source sheet on Olami resources. Okay, so 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 here's the outline, and we'll see how much we get through tonight. It's a three-part class, but the last class is being run by Rabbi Kraft, which is very exciting, because I, I sort of vaguely remember that he gave a class on this years ago, and uh, and he offered to do it again for us. Okay, um, so aesthetics in the Bible in general, right? We wanted to do just, let, let's just like go through the sources first and try to sort of divide up different sources by positive versus negative and, and see what we can come up with. And, and maybe use those anti versus, you know, versus positive sources to try to understand the perspective, right? Try to understand the hashkafa here. The second part of the outline is going to be reconciliation. So is there a place for beauty in Judaism? How do we reconcile, you know, seemingly totally divergent values? And then I hope we get to at least the first part of that one tonight. So we get the answer. And then we'll go through a lot more sources of the same thing. And then I would love to, at the end of next class, talk about a couple of very fascinating midrashim about makeup specifically, because that's what started off this whole discussion. There are some very relevant halachot that I came across as I was researching this, but we're probably not going to get to that. Okay. Um, okay, so what are some of the famous anti-beauty sources? In other words, when I say anti-beauty, I don't mean literally, necessarily anti-beauty, but I mean sources that would seem to say this is not a Jewish value, or this is not a spiritual value. This is not something that people of faith embrace. Devorah, you started us off beautifully, right? I'm actually going to add this to the source sheet. You said um, Tzniyas, or, or, or at least um, minimizing Someone said this to me recently. I forget what the term is. We, that we strive to be attractive, but not attracting. Yeah. Um, attractive versus attracting. There's certainly, oh, you know what? Let's actually make it into a Hebrew source. Kol kvuda basmach panima, right? Which, which is maybe related, maybe not, but it basically means the, the honor of a, 
the, the honor, the respect of woman is internal. In other words, it seems to be saying, don't flaunt your beauty, right? So at, at least we know even if, whether or not there's a value for beauty, there certainly seems to be a value against flaunting it. Can we all agree on that? Um, any other sources that come to mind when you think of like, you know, Sources in the Torah that seem to be saying beauty is not necessarily a very Jewish kind of value. Josephine, any ideas? I know you've learned some interesting things on this with Herbert and Eager. Um, she just spoke about Aisha's Heil, but I see that's number two. Yeah, I was going to say, those are not the traits. I mean, there are other traits that are exemplified as an ideal female oh, trait. 100%. Yeah. There's all these traits talked about as like, this is like what an ideal woman is. But then the fascinating piece is that it actually explicitly says, and this is not the ideal, right? And in fact, Aisha's Chayel is part of Mishle. It's part of, part of, um, you know, part of one whole book of Tanakh. And Aisha's Chayel is almost like the, the climax of it. And what's the climax of Aisha's Chayel? If, you, if you're seeing the song, you know, the climax is, Sheker um, that's, that's where we go high, right? Vanity, yeah. In other words, what does that mean? Shekar hachein yofi. It means chein charm um, is is a lie, and hevel hayofi and yofi beauty is hevel. What is hevel? Hevel is a term that's made very famous by Kohelas, by Shlomo HaMelech and Kohelas. What does hevel mean? So the amazing Rabbi Manning, who has a British accent, um, said the right the right translation would be vapid. It's empty. It's, it's emptiness, right? There's, there's nothing there. There's no substance there. Um, so that certainly seems to be saying, if you take it in just that context, it certainly seems to be saying beauty is vapidity. Beauty is not something that we should necessarily place a lot of intrinsic value on. Any other anti-beauty sources? Tabor, did you have anything yeah, to I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm chewing chips right now. Yeah. It, it makes me think of um, Jezebel. This might be more of a Christian thing, okay. but they, whenever I picture Jezebel, I just picture her with like tons of makeup and they're like, like, this is not religious values. Right. I mean, and there are, there are other sort of role models that also Vashti, I think is another character who is supposed to be so beautiful and so valued for her beauty to the point that, you know, this whole incident with Achashverosh and the measure says that she didn't go out, not because she was Tanua, but because she didn't look beautiful at that point. Um, yeah, so you certainly see these villainesses who seem to be placing, you know, a lot of emphasis on their physical beauty and not necessarily thinking about other pieces. Anything else? Any, do we have any other anti-beauty kind of sources? I thought we had much more than that because I feel like that is like our intuitive understanding of what's going on here. But then let's look at the pro-beauty sources. And again, we're going to be really confused here. Um, I'm adding your- Can I say something? Um, it's not a source, but I guess like as part of the culture, sometimes it's viewed as like not sneeze to wear a lot of makeup. I just, I don't have a source for it, but I've just seen that around or I don't see like sometimes in um, like, certain certain religious communities like i don't see young girls or even like girls who are 17 like wearing makeup even though in, in a public high school girls at each would yeah certainly in our community we we uh, we we definitely have some very sneeze girls yeah it's interesting it's, mm -hmm. it's almost like a cultural kind of thing um 
and it's it's more I don't I don't know it's 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 almost like societal slash cultural but it's definitely very intuitive that as that, that again like the not flaunting yourself right not striving to make yourself super attracting even though we are supposed to be attractive and and like Devorah said we are considered you know basma we are considered so could I just say I mean there's a distinction right between um, sexuality and beauty right and so. I think part of the tension is that usually they get conflated. Although if you're a woman, you could admire another woman's beauty without feeling sexual attraction necessarily, right? So, but I think that isn't, isn't that the issue that, that sexuality is meant to be very private and therefore, you know, you should be sexually attractive, but only within certain certain context. Um, that's a great point. That is the, that's certainly the case that we're talking about, specifically about the beauty of people. But we're sort of broadening the discussion here and talking about beauty in general. And actually the interesting thing is that we see the same kind of rules of Sniyut applied to, not just to, 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 uh, to, to beauty of people, right? For example, there's this concept that when somebody has a lot of wealth, they shouldn't flaunt it. The inside of your house can be beautiful, but don't make the outside of your house so grandiose. I remember seeing this um, in, in a really nice Jewish neighborhood. We are, there's you know, a couple of houses there that, that are like very inconspicuous, set back from the street, not too, they don't look too big from the outside. And you go inside and there are these beautiful houses. And I remember from a young age, asking my mother about this and she was saying like, you're not supposed to flaunt your wealth. You know, it's, it's not, it's, there's this concept of sneas and of ein ha-bracha shruya, ela al-masha samoy min ha-ayin, that blessing only rests on that which is hidden from the eye. And it's not just about let's, you know, 100% sexuality is something that's supposed to be kept private. Um, you know, and 100%, you know, wear beautiful lingerie, but but don't wear it out in the street. Don't even wear it publicly, you know, wear it very privately. But on the other hand, we see the same concepts of, of being attractive, not attracting, so to speak, with other kinds of beauty. But um, so let me ask you, I mean, there is a spiritual dimension to this and there's also culturally a practical dimension to this, right? So I think part of, I mean, I say this as the mother of a 14-year-old daughter. I mean, the practical dimension is that you want to protect yourself and you want to protect those around you. If you have a grandiose house, you're inviting, you know, whatever. I mean, I think there's a, a commonsensical uh, um, value to modesty. Right. As opposed to what though? As opposed to saying, I, you know, I do I value beauty? So for example, if I see a beautiful swan, I can, I can admire this one and say, okay, this is Hashem's work. There's, I'm admiring the beauty of nature, but it doesn't, it's not tinged with acquisition, right? right. In the same way that certain types of yeah. Yeah, yeah. beauty are associated with inspiring acquisition. That's a great point. It's, it speaks to the idea of, of flaunting versus not flaunting. But then you're saying that there is obviously some kind of intrinsic beauty in things that might be, that might be intrinsically valuable. 
Well, we say a bracha when we see something beautiful, right? So obviously admiring Hashem's, you know, beautiful world is part of a religious experience. Yes. So we're going to, so we have that source down here also. Yes, 100%. So let's get to that. Let's get to the pro-beauty sources. So what are some of our, what are some of our proofs or, or citations for saying, hey, you know what? The Torah really does seem to value beauty. So first of all, you know, and, and the truth is we just covered a lot of those examples. Lily, that was a great example. And I actually have it down by reconciliation because it really relates to, well, how do we relate to beauty? But we'll, we'll go back to it later. But this idea that there's actually a blessing that you say when you see not only a beautiful person, not, not only a beautiful scene, rather, but even a beautiful person. When you see an exceptionally beautiful person, you're supposed to say a blessing. When you see an exceptionally beautiful animal, you're supposed to say a blessing. And certainly when you see an exceptionally beautiful scene. Um, there's a specific blessing that we say in, in the spring when you see a fruit tree that talks about how, you know, God created beauty. So there's definitely, that's definitely a, a huge source for this, for saying, oh, clearly the Torah does have a place for beauty in it. Um, what else? So let, let's go through some of these. And I, I think, uh, Jessica, you mentioned this one, that there's beautiful people in Tanakh are mentioned again and again. So who are some examples? So the, the Imahot, right? Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, by all of them, it explicitly talks about how beautiful they are. Um, by Leah, contrast that by talking about how her eyes were, were you know, soft from crying. Um, what else? And any other any other people in Tanakh that we can think of who are talked about as being very beautiful? Men and women, by the way. We got Yosef. We got David, right? Yes. Who else? Ayehudas. I don't know. Is she in Tanakh? Yeah, she is in Tanakh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah where? Yehudis from, oh, no, she's not in Tanakh. She's in the books of, she's in the, books of the Maccabees, which are at, okay. yeah, but she's definitely mentioned as being beautiful, I believe. Yael. Yael. We have the, the Medrash that talks about the four most beautiful women of all time um, in the Talmud. It says, Sarah, Abigail, Rachav, and Esther, who are all, happens to be, were all these, these big, um, Zidkanio, Sarah is of course one of our foremothers. Abigail ended up becoming the wife of King David. Rachav was the woman who was was actually, you know, a um, owns a house of ill repute, but ended up saving Yoshua and Kalev when the Jews were coming into the lands of Egypt. No, not Yoshua and Kalev. Pinchas and Kalev. Now I'm getting confused. Who knows? Who knows Tanakh there well? Who did Rachav save? I just learned this. I should really know this. This was part of Nachiomi. Rachav saves the two. It was Kalev and... Okay, no, that makes me feel better that nobody else knows the answer either. And then Esther, who of course was the heroine of, of um, the Megillah. So they're mentioned as the four most beautiful women of all time. Um, Chava is mentioned as being beautiful. So there's clearly all these people mentioned as being beautiful, and uh, it's not saying it in a derogatory way. In fact, the Medrash, I'm going to pull up the source sheet, the Medrash actually says specifically about the beauty of Rachel that Yaakov, that part of the reason why Yaakov loved Rachel was because of her beauty, which I personally, you know, found surprising to even see it talk about that way. So let me pull up this source sheet, which is... Um, one of the sources from Rabbi Anthony Manning of Andrasha Sihila, whose classes we also use to talk about Sneas. I love, love thinking about things. 
So here's what he says. We're looking at source number. Um, source number five. Haro'a Adam. So source number four says, Ve'inei le'a rakhol, so rakhol hai sa'i fast tar, ve'i fast mara. The eyes of Leo is describing, you know, Yaakov going to meet Leah and Rachel, and it's talking about them. And it says the eyes of Leah were soft with weeping. They were soft. It's uh, weeping is is added in by the by the commentaries. But Rachel had said, "You fast Torah, we fast But Rachel had a beautiful form and was beautiful to look at. So um, below number five is the medrash on this pasuk, which says, if some if you see a beautiful person, how do you how do you what bracha do you make?" This is what our sages taught us. Okay, and then, so then it, you know it's it's um it's like etc. And you don't have anybody who is more beautiful than Rachel. And part of the reason why Yaakov wanted to marry her was because of her beauty. Does that does that bother anybody? That's pretty shocking, right? So. Mm -hmm. what going on here okay so that's that's that source so it's not just that we're saying the these people were beautiful and they were specifically called out as being beautiful you know we're even saying that that it was okay that they were beautiful and it was okay that they were valued for your beauty for their beauty so we need to try to understand this better and we'll, and we'll go into more detail when we get down to the to the reconciliation part of the outline but for now just to see that you know actually there's some very very pro-beauty kind of sources. Um, there's also beautiful places, animals, things that are mentioned in Tanakh, right? It says that Zion, which is Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, was given nine out of ten portions of physical beauty. It talks about the world, you know, the, 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 um, the, the voracious kind of narrative is, is full of references to beauty. Adam and Eve were, were called, you know, incredibly beautiful to the point where, I think the Medrash actually says that Sarah, that Sarah was so beautiful that most other women compared to Sarah, you know, were, were like monkeys. But Sarah compared to Eve was like a monkey because Eve was so beautiful. So when it talks about the foremost beautiful woman, it's saying woman born of woman because Eve was, you know, by far the most beautiful. So it, so it talks about the world right after creation and the special light that was there and the beauty of that. Um, and it's not just talking about you know, oh, we should, you know, we should be, there's these beautiful things in the world. There's actually laws protecting the beauty of this world, right? So we talked about this a little bit. If anyone, I don't know if anyone here was in my classes on, um, on, you know, on, on green and environmentalism and protecting the world. But there's actually, you know, a specific law specifically to ensure the physical beauty of any city. So in Numbers 35-2, we have this law talking about how you're sh you should be careful not to plant, not plant, plant or graze immediately around the city limits. And what does Rashi say there? Rashi says the reason for this is to ensure the physical beauty of the city. So in other words, it's not just that we're praising Jerusalem for being a beautiful city. We're saying you have an obligation to protect your environment, to keep it beautiful, right? To keep every city beautiful, not just Jerusalem, to keep every city beautiful. Um, so these are all, again, sort of pro-beauty sources. Then this one is fascinating. This one I had never, I have never read before, but but uh, I saw it in, in Abba Manning's outline. Let me share that one. Does anybody would anybody like to read this in English or in Hebrew? Um, let's 
see. I need to pick up. I need to put up Adobe. So if you look at source number seven and eight, anybody want to read that in Hebrew? Um, so this is from Shemos when it's talking about the creation of the, of the Mishkan, which was the precursor to the temple, right? It was a temporary temple, temporary sort of synagogue that we used in the desert. And it says, so what it's saying is it's talking about the curtains. The, the walls of the Mishkan were, were covered in curtains. And it's talking about how um, the outer coverings overhung the inner tapestries. And then it talks about how, so they had to, they should be, I'm not sure what the word seruach is. They fold it up or looped up in a very specific way. So this is a fascinating comment by Rashi. Listen to what Rashi says here. Rashi says, he seruach al mishkan. It should be looped up on the sides of the mishkan. And um, let's a photo of Rome on the north and on the south. Like I explained above. Lamda Torah Darach Aretz. And Rashi uses this term in a few places. He says, the Torah is teaching you Darach Aretz. What's Darach Aretz? How do, how do we translate it? How do we think about it? The term Zarecharetz. The way of the land. The way of the land, literally, right. And and like culturally speaking, it means like, this is how you should act. Like, you know, we're not talking about like, this is a mitzvah, this is an avir. We're saying this is a good way of acting. This is the right way to behave. You know, there's such a thing as just being, as just common sense, being a good person. This is it, right? So what's Zarecharetz here? Um, so the Torah is teaching you the way to act. That a man should, chas literally means should have pity, but what it's saying is a man should protect that which is beautiful. Right? Which I found absolutely fascinating. I don't think I've ever encountered that particular Rashi before. If I did, I didn't remember it. Um, but this idea that that part of Zarech Aret, that, that, a, that a piece of being a mensch is to protect that which is beautiful. I've definitely... Hmm. Idea that that you know, being clean and orderly is a good mida. Um, one day when my kids are older, um, but but this particular thing I had not heard before. Okay, let me go back to our outline. Can you all right now? Can you all see the the outline on the screen? Oh, so I'm, that's great. So now I'm just gonna share the desktop. Okay, fine, good. Okay. So we said that part of our hearts is to protect that, which is beautiful. Here's, to me, one of the most famous um, pro-beauty kind of midrashim or sources in the Torah is the medrash of the mirrors that were used for the mishkan. So who wants to share that with us? I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with that medrash. Um, my understanding of that is, um, and I could be completely wrong, that um, in Mitzrayim, the slaves didn't want to have kids because they didn't want them to also become slaves. So for a bit, they, they just separated from their wives. They didn't want to have kids. And so the women like took mirrors and like looked really cute and basically like seduced their husbands so that they would have kids. And so then they used those mirrors in the Mishkan for, what was it? I just read it. <laughs> it was like a basin or something, right? Or I don't know. Fountain for the 
fountain. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens? So they're in the Mishkan and they're, and everyone's bringing their donations and the women are all coming with these beautiful copper mirrors because that's what they use for mirrors in those days, right? Just very shiny, burnished metallic surfaces. And Moshe's really hesitant. He's like, wait a minute. Like these are the mirrors like they're using just to like look pretty. Like why, you know, is that, is that really befitting to have in the Mishkan? By the way, to make us feel better, Moshe clearly struggled with this same question. Right of the, of the role of beauty and the role of specifically the role of, of sexual beauty in this context, but the role of beauty in general in a spiritual place. And Hashem says to him, "These are the most beloved to me of all these mirrors." And not just like, "Oh yeah, no, no, they're okay. It's fine. It's fine. You know, let, let them give them." It's like, no, these are the most beloved. These are the most holy. Why? Because they were used by the women to channel their beauty. Now I'm sort of giving away part of the answer, but to channel their beauty to a holy purpose. Right? They were used by this woman to really save the Jewish nation. Um, it's very, it's, when, you, when you actually look inside the Medrash, it's very, it's very uh, interesting to just see the whole description of like sort of like the whole flirtatious exchange with their husbands using the mirrors. Um, and, and there's a lot, and there's a lot of deeper layers to it. You know, when you look at the Kabbalah of it, and they looked in the mirrors and they said, "I'm more beautiful than you." Anyway, um, but the idea over there certainly seems to be valuing beauty and valuing the fact that these women were were taking care of their not just taking care of their beauty, but using their beauty, right? Literally using their beauty. So that's an interesting source that certainly seems to be saying something positive about beauty. Here's a much more straightforward one in Pirkei Avot. Um, it lists the qualities that are befitting a sage, it says, you know, and it, it talks about how Rebbe and his sons all have these qualities. And I think it goes through 10 qualities, maybe I could be wrong, it could be seven. It's either seven or 10 qualities that are befitting a sage. The very first one is beauty. So again, like these are very non-intuitive kinds of. But are we talking about physical beauty? We are. We are. According to most of the commentaries, they're certainly according to the shots, right? Certainly according to the basic meaning of the verse, we're talking about physical beauty. So what's going on here? Um, and then the last thing that I just added on for you, Zubar, is Bas Malach. It should look nice because we're a Bas Malach, right? I've certainly heard that. Okay, so we have, we're a little confused here. We definitely maybe intuitively feel like, like there's less of a place for beauty in the Torah than there's... Than, than, um, there's not such a major place for beauty in the Torah. And uh, we definitely have some sources that seem to be supporting that. But on the other hand, we have all these sources where the Torah is praising beauty. And in many cases, it's physical beauty. In many cases, it almost, almost seems to be sexual beauty. So what's going on here? We're clearly, you know, we're, we're, we're clearly not, we're clearly not saying that beauty and spirituality are incongruous. We're clearly saying that there has to be a place for both, but what's the reconciliation? So before we even go into the sources here, first of all, any questions on, on number one before we move on? On Roman numeral one, part of the outline? Everyone's on board? It's nice, it's nice to see everyone's names, even if I don't see your faces. A question. Um, kind of related to what was just asked, but how do we know when we're taking things literally or not, whether it really is physical beauty or whether we're talking about the impression of physical beauty based on internal characteristics, always, the metaphor of physical beauty. Beautiful. So there's always four levels of understanding the Torah. 
there's Pshat, it's called, the acronym for it is Pardes, which is, which literally means the, or, which you can see, take to me in the orchard, but there's Pshat, Remez, Drash, and Sod. Pshat is like the basic surface meaning. And then there's Remez, Drash, and Sod. And, you know, going sort of a deeper and deeper levels, Sod is really like the level of Kabbalah, the level of really, you know, very esoteric kind of spiritual forces that most people have no hope of understanding, certainly not I. Um, different parts of the Torah are, are um, you know, are, are either, you know, different parts of the Torah are, are taken to, to, um, to are, should be interpreted certainly on one or the other level. Most parts of the Torah, the Tanakh certainly, you can interpret on different levels. Right, so the so you know the twenty four books of Moses you can interpret on different levels. You can interpret the same pasuk homiletically, but also just like the basic like surface meaning. And you'll see very often Rashi will say different commentators will say shal mikra, the simple meaning of the verse, and then he'll say and measure shagadza. But the measure states so what's the deeper meaning? Um, some pieces of the Torah, like for example Agadita, which is the part of the Talmud that's all stories are not necessarily meant to be interpreted according to Pshat, right? We're not necessarily, and in fact, many, many of those stories are not, right? So, so not the stories, not the historical stories, but, you know, so this, per this, what happened to this person and this took place and then this, and, you know, some of like the, the more weird, far out stories in Agatha and Talmud are not necessarily even meant to be interpreted as Pshat, they're meant to be interpreted as a metaphor. Um, how do we know which is which? So it's either what part of the Torah it's in, for example, Kabbalah is certainly, you know, very esoteric and we can't necessarily understand it in a very literal sense. Um, there, we can understand it, but not necessarily in a literal sense. And, and usually only after years and years of building up to that kind of level of learning. Um, but, but also our, our sages will tell us different interpretations. And again, keeping in mind, Shivan Panam Torah, which means there are 70 facets to the Torah. So it's not necessarily... Um, mutually exclusive to understand something as this is the shot, and then this is a deeper way of understanding it. But the craft is very good at that. I like taking us to like a little bit of a deeper level of understanding stories. That's a great question. Okay. Um, any other questions on number one before we move on to number two with our two questions starting? So I have two questions, and I guess it's not exactly a good form for breaking up into small groups to discuss. But first of all, why did God create a beautiful world? Let's, let's just take some answers. Right. If we're going to talk about is there a place for beauty in Judaism, we have to talk about the fact that this is a gorgeous world that he created. And, and not only that, but it says again and again, and God looked at the world and he saw that it was good. Right. Which, which, you know, speaking of like interpretations, on its face value, it seems to me that he saw it was a beautiful world. Right. Um, if, if everyone, is everyone familiar with the story? I believe it took place with Arshamshan or Frau Hirsch, but I could be wrong. Who... Uh, I don't, I actually, I don't know if it was him. I'm not going to say it was him. I don't know if it was him, but one of the sages of the 1800s, you know, one of the great Torah leaders of the 1800s who went to visit the Alps, who, who lived, you know, far away and certainly far away from the 1800s and went to visit the Alps and they, and his students asked him like, you know, you're, you're so busy learning all day and not wasting a minute and you're spending two, three weeks going to visit the Alps. Like, you know, what gives? And he said to them, when I get to the he to the heavens, God's gonna say to me, I think if it was you know something using his first name, you know, Rafal, did you see my Alps? You know, basically saying, listen, God created this gorgeous world. We have an obligation to enjoy it, right? The Medrash talks about how um, 
when you get, the manager talks about how you're held to account for not enjoying the physical world. If you came across a beautiful fruit and you didn't try it, a beautiful new fruit and you didn't try it, you're held to account for that, right? What are your thoughts on this? Lily, you look like you're thinking something. Um, well, I mean, a, <laughs> there are a lot of things that are off limits. So there's a lot of um, emphasis also on boundaries, but at the same time, um, I think the, the understanding is that the things that are off limits are somehow uh, less beautiful in some, maybe not aesthetic sense, but um, more uh, sort of a deeper sense, right? I mean, that was what, what I was thinking. Interesting. I love, I love your way of looking at things. In other words, sort of connecting the, the physical beauty with some kind of spiritual or dis, self-discipline, self-control kind of aspect that enhances it. It's not just about physical beauty. It's not just about absorbing this glut of physicality, obviously. So, I mean, at least, you know, in, in mathematics and physics and so forth, I mean, beauty has a meaning that has to do with perfection right? So symmetry and simplicity. Um, and I think, I mean, I don't want to take us too far afield, but one, one way to think about this is that in creating a perfect world, it's, it couldn't be improved upon. And that's actually the definition of, of beauty. Ah, oh, that's interesting. But did God create a perfect world? There's a fascinating midrash where Rabbi Akiva is having an argument with a Roman, with, with either a Roman governor or something like that, where the Roman, you know, and the, and the Romans certainly believe that the that the human body was perfection, right? And the mm -hmm. Roman, how dare you circumcise children, right? God, you know, there's this gorgeous human body, and then you go and you mutilate it. And so Rabbi Akiva says to him. Well, I, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember exactly the details, but basically he says to him, what's more beautiful, a bundle of wheat or a loaf of bread? Or what's more beautiful? What, what's, what's more attractive for us? What do we want to have more, a bundle of wheat or a loaf of bread? Right? And, and obviously the answer is the loaf of bread. And he says, this is, God didn't create this world in, a, in the state of absolute perfection. God created a gorgeous world and gave it to us to further perfect. And Lily, this ties in beautifully with what you're saying about limiting, right? Because the whole idea of circumcision is placing a physical symbol of limiting our interaction with the physical world. Right? Mm -hmm. Can I ask a question about that? Yeah, sure. So that story, so the answer to that, the, the wheat versus the loaf of bread, and you find the bread to be more beautiful or appealing or desirable in that sense, but why would it not be yeah. the wheat with the potential that you have to create with that? Like, I'm just really interested. What would you, let's say you're starving hungry, what would you rather have in your hand? That's yeah, but that's like, but that's the, okay, if that's the context, that's different. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing, Haley. I might be getting, I might be getting the piece of it wrong. Just interested. Yeah, that's, that's the basic idea there. That, that this is that that this is in a more is in a state that's more useful for us, right? The bread is in a state that's more useful for us for sure. Um, and the the other question to, to sort of grapple with, and this is a great segue into number one, which I think we'll get to. Number A is why is the Torah? Why does the Torah tell us this person is beautiful, that person is beautiful? 
you know, Yaakov loved Rachel and part of it was because of her beauty. It all just feels so counterintuitive to how we're used to thinking about beauty, at least in this sort of like Judeo-Christian kind of value world. Um, and when I, I say Judeo-Christian in quotes because I think that that really, you know, American values are much more heavily influenced in many ways by the Puritans than by, than by its true version of Torah Judaism, right? So what's going on here? So I think a great point to start with, and then we'll use this, this point to sort of arrive at a principle, is Sari Imenu. Right? So Sari Imenu is considered to be really one of the most beautiful women who ever lived, one of the foremost beautiful women who ever lived. And when, you know, when, it's, when the Torah is extolling her virtues, it talks about how she died at 127 years old. And the, the Torah uses this very strange language there where it says, you know, she was a hundred and she was 20 and she was seven. And what the, what the commentaries say over there, it's even because, because whenever you see strange language, you always want to look at, you always want to clarify, wait, why is there this strange language here? So what the commentaries say over there is that um, when she was a hundred, she was, hang on a second, actually, I think I have this in a quote somewhere here. Let me see if it's in one of my source sheets. Um, when she was a hundred, she was as... Let's see if it's in this one. Um, let me check one more source sheet and see if it's in that one. No, it's not in here. But so I, might, I might butcher a little bit. But when she was 100, she was as free of sin as when she was 20. And when she was 20, she was as beautiful as when she was seven. So what's actually going on here? What are they really trying to tell us? So basically, this, this sort of leads us into a, a principle in Judaism in general, a principle of how Judaism reconciles the physical and the spiritual world, right? So, so, we, so God created us as a duality. We each have a physical body and we have a spiritual soul right? And there are really three ways of dealing with that, right? You have two things. There are three ways of dealing with those two, with those two dueling kind of forces. By the way, whenever I talk about this, I always think about Freud because I can't, I can't imagine Freud didn't get some of his ideas from this idea of, of you have this Yitzhara and this Yitzhara Tov. You have this, this inner soul and then you have this, the pull of the body, right? So there's three different ways of dealing with this, right? One way of dealing with it is to become a hermit, to become, a, you know, an, an aesthetic, to just say, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I can't embrace the physical world. It's too overpowering. It's too overwhelming. I'm going to, you know, try to minimize any involvement I have with physicality. And the less involvement I have with physicality, the the louder my soul can speak and the more holy I'll be. Now, I don't know about you guys, but this to me is a little intuitive. Like it's not such a crazy kind of idea to me, right? In fact, I was just learning with a couple of people about Tisha B'Av coming up, talking about fasting and talking about how part of the idea of a fast is to quiet your physical side, to quiet your physical self so that there's room for the spiritual. And it sort of makes sense to us, right? I mean, the classic example of this, of course, is the Christian idea of celibacy. That, you know, that truly holy people are, are the most celibate. 
But here's the thing, it's really not a Jewish idea, right? In fact, you know, the holiest person in, in, in let's say the Christian religion, let's say we'll say that that's the Pope, for example, is has to be celibate, right? Versus what, who's the holiest character in the pantheon of, of Judaism? What would you guys say? Who's the holiest sort of role? What's the what's the highest spiritual role in Judaism? I mean, Cohen Gadol, right? Exactly. What do we know about the Cohen Gadol and his and celibacy? He is not celibate. Not only is he not celibate, the Cohen Gadol had to be married in order to do his work to the point where they they would you know they would ask a a an unmarried woman to be prepared to marry him on Arab Yom Kippur in case his wife died so every year there was somebody you know I think of like the show designated survivor and there was somebody there who knew like if if the Kohen Gadol's wife dies I'm prepared to step in and marry him why is that because in Judaism the duality of female and male is so important that you're not considered a whole person unless you have another half. It's more for men than for women. Women are actually considered to be more perfect and more whole. I'm so glad Shlomo's on the room right now. Um, even when, even without being married, but men certainly are considered to be incomplete without being married. So that's a huge contrast between, you know, our emphasis on physicality versus the Christian kind of view, or, or maybe not the Christian kind of view, but certainly the Catholic kind of view of, of, of what's the right balance between the physical and the spiritual. All right, so that's one approach. There's three ways of dealing with this duality, with this, with this battle that you have. And one approach to that way is by saying, you know what, we're just gonna have to totally minimize physicality as much as possible. We'll live in a cave, we'll eat bread and water, we'll live in our little cells, we'll be celibate. And that way we'll be able to listen to the spiritual side of ourselves, listen to our soul. What's the second way? What's the second way to deal with this kind of fight? The second way would be to sort of give in to the physical part, right? So the second way, which, which in my opinion is, is very, is, you know, very um, reminiscent of Freud, is to say, we're going to let our physical, we're, we're, we know our physical body is super strong. And we know that it's sort of overpowered. Our only way of dealing with our physical body, really, is to uh, bribe it, you know, to sort of say, okay, like, the, well, once in a while, the, well, well, the soul will try to exert some kind of pressure, will try to sort of let the soul win once in a while, but, but the soul is sort of always having to bribe the physical body, right? The soul is always having, it's like the whole concept of like the superego, trying to negotiate between the ego and the id. Like the soul always is sort of um, the on the losing side. And whatever it wins, it gets, it gets, right? Like, you know, okay, so engage in this world and, ha and have a very busy job and have a very busy life and be very ambitious and, and be hedonistic and go traveling. And like, you know, also volunteer on the side so that you make sure that you're doing your good deed. That's sort of the, the you know, a second kind of attitude, obviously nobody thinks that, we're, we're not even putting it out there as like an option that just like let physicality take over because nobody in any culture thinks that it's okay to just totally let physicality take over, right? We certainly think that, that, that as a human beings, we need to have some kind of meaning. 
but the but the second option that I think is probably very very common in Western culture is to just say, okay, you know, listen, we're primarily physical beings, but we also have a soul. So the same way we exercise every day. I'm being a hypocritical because I totally say this to my patients. But the thing we exercise every day and we take care of and we have good nutrition and we have good sleep, also every day make sure to do something for your soul, right? That's sort of the second way of dealing with this, with this um, conflict. What's the Jewish way of dealing with it? Or, what's, or rather, what's the ideal Jewish way of dealing with it, right? What is, what is the Torah, how does the Torah want us to deal with it? What are we striving towards? I don't think I'm going to reach this in my life. But what am I striving towards? I'm striving towards... A, our foremother, Sarah. So what was Sarah's, what was the role of beauty with Sarah? Why is it talking about how she was as beautiful at 20 as she was at seven and she was as righteous at 100 as she was at 20? By the way, the reason, this is just an aside, the reason why the year 20 is used is because until the age of 20, people are not bar onshim, which means that they're not necessarily considered to be liable for their sins until the age of 20. It's her soul was as free of blemishes at 100 as it was at age 20. So what was Sarah's secret? Sarah was able to perfect the third path. What's that third choice when you're dealing with this duality? Your third choice is really the way God originally created man in the Garden of Eden. So we spoke about this a lot when we did our whole long unit on Tznia. So Orly and Hannah, I'm sure you remember this perfectly. Um, I can't see your faces, so I don't know if you do. But we, but we spoke about the fact that when man and woman were created, they were naked. And why were they naked? They were naked because there was no shame, because their physical body entirely reflected their inner self. And that's the ideal in Judaism. That's how we're supposed to be. And we're supposed to be in a state where God created us with a physical body. We can't interact with this world without a physical body. Our physical body has intrinsic beauty and also intrinsic worth but it's supposed to be an entire and utter reflection of our spiritual self that's the third way of dealing with this dichotomy is to really have a completely equal partnership of body and soul where there's beauty in this world and there's pleasure in this world and there's physicality in this world and that is embraced and that is intrinsically valued but only in the context of balancing it with with, um, with an equal emphasis on spirituality. And again, this is an ideal that, 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 you know, maybe we strive for it, but who knows how, you know, clearly, you know, sorry, Mina was the one who reached it. We're, we're certainly very, I'm certainly very far from that. But the reason why it specifically says, you know, what does it say about Sarah? It says her, she was as free of sin. And it says she was as beautiful, right? And that's expressing this duality. That's expressing that she had what does that mean that she was a that she was a perfect, complete woman? What that means is that she was, she had perfected both sides of herself. She had perfected both her physical side and her spiritual side to the point where they were equally balanced and equally, um, and equally uh, pulling. You know, there was there was total, you know, sort of the the the, the weights were were equal. And it's interesting, by the way, that it says, it talks about her being, you know, as beautiful as a seven-year-old. Because when you think about a seven-year-old, you don't necessarily think about the seven-year-olds being the most beautiful of ages or the most beautiful. I mean, Maya Yalet, who will be seven, just lost, you know, her fourth front tooth. She has a huge gap. She cannot eat apples at all, um, for, you know, in her mouth right now because she has no teeth. Like, we don't, we don't think of seven as darling as being the most beautiful age. But the significance of that is the, is the um, innocence of that beauty. 
right? The fact that there's sort of this, it's, it's still a very unselfconscious kind of beauty at that age. So I think that this principle of the Torah approach to physical and spiritual balancing is sort of really the, the main, I mean, I feel like we sort of answered the question and now next class will just be commentary and more sources on this idea. But to me, that sort of is the main answer here, that yes, there's for sure an intrinsic value to be, there's certainly a place for it in Judaism, but only in the context of balancing it with spirituality. We're going to actually look at a couple of other things that specifically talk about that context, and there's a fascinating way of understanding the H.S. Kyle verse, but we're not going to have time to do that, but, but, I, but before we end the class, I'd love to hear thoughts, questions, comments, um, any kind of challenges. Can I say something about Sara Menu um, that I learned? So before she was married, her name was Yiska, Yiska. Um, and then when she got married, she changed her name to Sarai. And so Yiska had, has three meanings. It means my princess, it means a prophetess, and it also means like be be a beautiful person. But once she got married and took on the mission, her, she changed her name to Sarai, which only has two of those three meanings. So it also means my princess and God sees like prophetess, but she, um, but it doesn't mean like beautiful. Yeah. So it's just kind of interesting that even though she was such, like, such a beautiful person, she didn't choose to identify by a name that, um, you know, that pointed out her beauty. That is totally fascinating. Thank you, Jessica. I, I, I saw a source talking about her name as being Yiska, but I didn't realize that it was specifically before she was married. And talking yeah. about her name being Yiska as, as symbolizing both her prophetess values and her beauty, which again is mm -hmm. the both, but that's fascinating that she changed it, that it was specifically before she got married. I never knew that. Thank you for sharing. That's like right on point. Very interesting. Any other thoughts, comments, questions, challenges? Does this answer sort of ring true to us? Or does this answer make sense to us? Does this, you know, make us a little bit less hot and bothered about this whole topic? Svera, what are you thinking? I'm just picking on you because you were so bothered by it. So I want to see if we answered it yet. Or do we... Mm. <laughs> Uh, I get, I get some of it. <laughs> well, what about it still bothers you? Um, I'm just going to be honest right now. I haven't been paying like amazing attention. <laughs> so I don't really know what we're up to right now. I'm so sorry. Sorry, your answer was perfect. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. I will totally take that, Devara. Zaleska, what are you thinking? Well, overall, I think it's just very split still, like in the sense of like, okay, so which one is it? But then at the same time, I also do think that the reason why we focus so much on like the physical beauties, because like, once again, like I think our brains just, that's how we convert it to. It's like, okay, yes, it can be like a, like have great thoughts and like very knowledgeable and stuff, but like the way that our brains can process it is through, okay, they're a beautiful person. So it's like, that's our way of hum like making it a human yeah. feeling slash idea in a sense. 
Yeah. yeah. There's, that's just how we relate to the world is, is through the physical piece. That's very interesting. Um, any other thoughts, comments, or questions before we, before we end the class? In some ways, it still feels a little bit unfair that Hashem, like, gave people their, fa like, whatever face they were born with. Like, yeah, we can change our bodies by exercising and eating well if we want to, but we're born with the face that we have. And some people just are considered more beautiful than others. So it's like there is this emphasis on beauty and, like, yeah, makeup can do so much or really, you know, it, it seems like it should be, like, oh, every person's beautiful because that's how Hashem made that person, every person. So maybe I think that's a part of it that still bothers me. So two points about that. First of all, Robinson Heller had a really cited a really interesting measure that we'll talk about next week about why, like, what is the place for deformity then, right? And she went, she took it a step further, not just about someone who's ugly, but someone who's like ugly to the point of being deformed, right? That what's God doing there, right? If, if beauty is intrinsically important, then what's God doing over there? And we'll talk about that next week. But another point to point out is that I think we we have to remember that this world is not we're not living in an ideal world right we're not living in the world of of um Adam and Eve before the sin where where they were able to be naked because their physical body completely reflected their soul right our physical body is always supposed to reflect our soul Robertson Hunter talks about that as well the fact that you know, the part of the reason why physical beauty is important is because we, we think of the physical body as being a reflection of the soul. Um, but the older people get, you know, when you, you see, I, I can't think of any examples off, I mean, I could think of some examples offhand, you know, of, of great women who sort of the older you get, the more, um, the older and the more perfected of a person you become you sort of feel like you see the person's soul shining out of their face. It's a quality that we call chen, I think. Right, am I right, Chai? Is, is that, is that what, when we think of chen, is that what we're talking about? This idea that like someone, it's not, it's not just the physical beauty, it's like this grace that shines out of their face. The person I'm thinking of is Robertson, is Robertson Kanievsky, who I, you know, who I was lucky enough to meet a few times before she passed away. And she was this older woman who, you know, was in her 80s already, certainly did not place a lot of emphasis on her looks at all. Um, but her face was like shining, you know, and you didn't look at her and think, oh, wow, like this is an old woman who, you know, you know, who probably, you know, who probably has, does not even know what mascara means, right? You didn't look at her and think that you sort of looked at her and just saw this beauty shining out of her face. And I think you know, that's part of the answer to that is that the physical beauty doesn't, you know, the fact that physical beauty matters so much today is a reflection of an imperfect world. It's not a, the, the, what exactly what you were saying, Alaska, also like, yes, the way we relate to this world is so much more through physicality than spirituality, but that's only because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve existed in a state where you saw the spirituality as strongly as you saw the physicality, which again is why they didn't need clothing. Because when you looked at their body, you saw their spiritual soul. That's what you saw. Right? So I think that's... Add to that? It's not fear. But the reason it's not fear is because of the sin. Hi, what did you say? Yeah, sorry. Um, I think like what you're part of it, what you were saying, what Chain is, is having to do with like internal beauty. And I think another part of that also has to do with like beauties in the eye of the beholder. 
So we look at someone as having like chayin, this amorphous chayin, like what is chayin? It's because there's something about them that attracts us. And a lot of it has to do with their personality or something about their nature that's very giving or generous or like something that makes you feel good about yourself. And that's what makes you describe them as beautiful. So like to Jessica's point about how like some people are born ugly, I think it's important to remember that like beauty is so subjective. So when you say people are ugly, you're basing it off like the standards of whatever's popular like now, today, like with makeup trends or whatever. But like I read a study once where um, they gave like a picture of a woman's face, like a plain face and distributed it to Photoshop artists in countries all over the world and told them to Photoshop the face to this, what's considered the most beautiful woman in their country. And there were, it came out with like 50 different faces because all over the world, beauty's so different. So in some countries where people have darker skin, they Photoshop it to make it darker you know, countries where they have different eyes or whatever, they change it because that's what's beautiful or maybe the opposite is beautiful. Like things are always changing, you know what I mean? So like, what is beauty really? Like you're like, oh, some people are beautiful. Some people are not. Who is saying what beauty is? There's no like God-given definition for like, this is beautiful. It's what we consider beauty. And I think that's also very like dependent on where we're from also. I think we had this conversation at your house, Peril. Like, in Colombia, it's very known, like, it's curvy is, like, good. Like, you want to be curvy. You don't want to be thin and, like, and here in the United States, that's, like, the look. So I think it's just, like, um, Chaya said, it all just depends on, like, where you're from, like, your perception of beauty, because it is very different depending on the person. I also think that there's some interpretations, like, there's a micro level of beauty and then there's a macro where you think about what's beautiful for society and what the expectation is, but people don't really look like that. So when you think about your actual friends and the people you interact with every day, like these are the most beautiful people in your life because you understand them, but they don't have to look anything like what you would see in the media at all. And it's all sometimes off-putting when people just try to, because it's inauthentic. So like, I feel like there's a smaller level of like clear actually interacting with who you see in person. And then there's the idealized standards. This is why I really like interpretations that are rooted in Torah for me because it feels more authentic and more attainable if it's supposed to be intrinsic and in God's image. So much better to attain or to strive for than something that's always going to inherently put people down other than raise them up. It's so interesting where you all took this discussion. I hadn't even thinking about that. Basically, what we're saying, we're, we're really thinking of what is the actual definition of beauty. And what we're saying is that the definition of beauty is go, goes back to that principle of when your physical reflects your spiritual. When your outer beauty is a reflection of inner beauty, that's really, in, in some ways, the most, the most holy of states. Just to say a total tangent, and then I'm going to let us go. Um, it's not such a total tangent, but but when I was going through different shiram on this, trying to prepare, Rev Cook has a fascinating piece where he talks about how righteous people appreciate aesthetics more because they're so disconnected from it, because they're not they're not beholden to it, they're not subjugated to it, they're not dependent on needing things to be beautiful, and therefore they have a little bit more distance, they can appreciate it more. And I was connecting that in my head to something that Robertson Heller said on an unrelated question. She was talking about music and she was citing um, the, the uh, you know, different opinions on listening to non-Jewish music, actually. And some opinions, there's valid opinions on both sides where some opinions say, 
that music is such a spiritual force that when you listen to non-Jewish music, you're connecting to the soul of the creator. And if that creator of it was, and when you listen to any music, you're connecting to the soul of that creator because it's so spiritual. And if that creator was a, was a bad person, then, you know, you can be influenced by that soul. But there's another opinion, you know, that one of the most uh, famous proponents of this view is the Baltanya, the founder of Chabad, who says um, that music actually comes from a higher place than the creator. The creator of the music, the composer, is a, is a channel for it, but it's actually coming from a totally spiritual, you know, sort of godly kind of place. And therefore, you know, if you have a tune, you can put any lyrics that you want to that tune and channel it towards holiness in that way. What was the connection? Why had I make that connection? Oh, just connect. I don't know, actually. <laughs> this is pregnancy read. I'm not sure what that connection was, but that's sort of what it reminds me of. Okay. I think we're done for tonight. Next week is, of course, Tishbev. I mean, you know, the, the, the night after Tishbev. So we won't be meeting, but we'll be meeting in two weeks to finish this outline. And then the third week, we will have our guest speaker. Thank you all so much for joining. It was so nice to have everyone here, especially people I haven't seen in a while. Um, Hana, Orly, Phyllis, Shari, thanks for joining. Take care. And Haley, so nice to see you. Thank you. Have a good Shabbos. Thank you. Have a good Shabbos. Bye, guys. Good Shabbos.